Hello and welcome to the Culturefile Naturalist Bookshelf and we're in front of a very live audience at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin at Dublin Book Festival. This time we'll delve into the word wild, a source of fear and fascination in undulating waves, falling in and out of favour and back in again, soothing and scaring from the dark forest, the seat of fairy tale anxiety, to the capital R romanticised Edens of our present world. Wild is the word, let's remember, that spans, among other things, the distances, cinematic and culinary, between Wild Strawberries, Bergman, 1957, and Wild Mountain Time, Shanley, 2020. More recently, our notions of wilds and its opposite surface at the roots of the crisis of climate and biodiversity. A good time, then, for some clearing work. So with us today, currons in hand, are our four guests who have each engaged with both the wild and the word wild in their work. We have uh, in the blue Lisa Fingleton, who's a writer and artist exploring connections between art, food, and farming. And among her many projects, many, many projects, she runs the Barnaway Organic Farm Wildlife Sanctuary and Arts Centre outside Ballybunion. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Also to Anya Murray, who's an ecologist and broadcaster. Behind many other things, she created Archie Lyric FM's Nature File. And Anya has the word wild right there in the title of her book, Wild Embrace, Connecting to the Wonder of Ireland's Natural World, more about which in a moment, which the Irish Times called a supremely useful handbook for the moment. Gwen Wilkinson, right down at the other end of the table there, is an artist and writer whose wildness is found on water and sometimes in water, as recounted in her book, The Waters and the Wild, about her journey on Ireland's waterways wild and occasionally slightly organized. Paddy Woodworth, the remaining panelist, is an author, journalist, lecturer, and the man behind, or at least to the side of, the bookshelf as the presenter of the series The Naturalist Bookshelf on Culture File. His book, Our Once and Future Planet, which has a terrific title without even using the word wild, looks at the promise of ecological restoration. That's our panel today, if you would like to give them a warm welcome. Lovely and warm. I wanted to start off with a warm-up question, which I, I'd like everybody to have a little essay at. I want to ask you, where is the wild in your daily life? Lisa, where is the wild in your daily life? Sometimes I wish it wasn't so wild. I think with these increasing storms, we live on a 20-acre organic farm just outside Ballybunion, and um, so just on the coast near the sea. And uh, I suppose we would have started in the farm looking at food and growing local food, but more and more, we've, my partner and Irina, who's here, we've been very involved in climate action and, and really, I suppose, devastated at the level of biodiversity loss. So we're looking at ways of how can we create and protect habitats on our little farm. Um, so we have planted 10,000 trees with a native, native woodland scheme and we're trying to protect then the native meadows that are already existing on the land and protecting old woodland on the land as well. And then, of course, we're, we're by the sea, so we get the wild Atlantic way in all of its beautiful fury and everything else. Whoever came up with that title, I mean, it was <laughs> ingenious because it, it it does what it says in the tin. So yeah, we're just beside that. So we get wild every day. And as you said already, we've created a wildlife sanctuary on our land because people used to hunt on our land. So we felt it was really important to establish that it was a safe place for nature. And it's, it is extraordinary to see what 
comes back very quickly, like the barn owls, ravens, buzzards. It's, it's actually amazing, even on a small patch of land. Your, your daily life is basically covered in wildness of one sort or another. Thank you. Gwen? Um, well, I'm constantly uh, plotting my next um, uh, adventure into the wild. I live on a piece of land um, in South County Carlo. It's even smaller than Lisa's. It's just uh, an acre. But um, we've managed to develop an incredible space for nature and a, um, you know, a refuge for creatures that are being pushed further and further into the margins. Um, creatures such as red squirrels, pine martens, uh, buzzards, badgers, hedgehogs. Um, so I'm incredibly fortunate in that sense. And I, I find it very difficult to tear myself away at times from my, my little domestic haven. Paddy Woodworth, where is the wild in your everyday life? In my imagination sometimes. It's a word I find problematic, as I'll say later. <laughs> um, but... Do you know um, that somebody um, somebody actually wrote uh, when this when the topic was mentioned on Instagram? Somebody wrote, "Why is wild problematic? This is an outrageous suggestion." So you're going to antagonise those people. Oh, problematic I'm, is a problematic I'm, word. I, I, I have a bulletproof jacket. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I do think that it's a really important word and a really important concept. And I suppose. You can find the wild anywhere. I'm, I'm privileged enough to live both in Stony Batter and in Glenmalure. And either way, you know, I can walk out in Stony Batter and find a, a fern that has somehow found a foot, foothold in the mortar of these 19th century working class walls. And, uh, and if you really focus on that, you're in the wild. And I have to confess that I do enjoy moments when I'm completely alone in a landscape where uh, other human beings aren't obvious. They're always present, but so some remote place in the Basque country where I can spend a few hours walking and see nobody else, that's attractive too. And, and that, that idea comes up that the, if you're alone, that's uh, closer to wildness. And what you're saying there is, I, I think you, you kind of can make wildness by your own kind of concentration, which is sort of an interesting version of wildness. Anya Murray, uh, you, you have wild in the title of your book. Where's the wildness uh, in your everyday life, besides in the title of your book, obviously? Um, I, I also split my time between the countryside and the city. Um, but even in the city, like you can see, just the other day I saw geese flying overhead, really, really high up in, in a V-shaped formation. I'm actually not sure if they were geese or swans, but I stopped and it was really arresting the shape, the height, the sound that they made and thinking, where are they coming from? Where are they going to? What are they? Um, that was the first thing that came into my head when you asked about, you know, where is the wild in my day? Water birds have declined. Um, a, a, I think 40% is the estimate for all of our wild waterfowl in Ireland, which is a very dramatic decline in a very short space of time. And this is due to the loss of, of wetlands like peat bogs, coastal wetlands, um, draining of, of agricultural land. So it, it is in a way harder to get to places that are a little bit kind of more wild and tangled and, and um, those, thing, those places we think of as wild, though they aren't, they aren't really wild, but that, that's for a conversation later on, maybe. <laughs> well, I think uh, Paddy has it, it there, this idea that you bring it with you, because, you know, there is, in any city in, around Dublin, there are bramble patches, and it feels a bramble patch often looks like the very definition of wild. Bramble are the... the uh, the perfect um, way to express wild because they grow wherever, they clamber over everything else, they're thorny, uh, 
they're not attractive, we don't particularly like brambles, they're, they're difficult to tame and control, which for me is the, the opposite of what wild is. Great, thank you very much, all of you. So, Lisa, I will come back to you. You're kind of working with art and farming, which is one of the hot fault lines of wild, where wild is a very contested and, and as Paddy would say, problematic word. Is, is that a, a positive impetus in your work or, or, or too much of a challenge? No, I, I think it's, it's been really, really interesting how, you know, work takes you. I always find art and creativity, I don't know if the rest of you find this, but it's almost the art and the drawings take me to places that I didn't think I'd ever end up. And children often say to me, do you actually get paid to do this? Like, you're actually paid to draw and work on farms. And I'm like, I know it's really cool, isn't it? It didn't exist when I was a child. So for the last two years, particularly, I've been working on a, the Climate Action Fund. I don't know if people are aware of it, but really interesting projects working with groups to look at all of these issues. So um, particularly in terms of climate change and biodiversity loss, but also issues of wild and how do we protect habitats and spaces. But the really striking thing that I remember was being on a dairy farm one day and there was a beautiful old stone wall and I didn't even know the names of half of the plants on the wall and I came back to the farmer and had a cup of tea in his house and I, and I showed him photographs and he had tears in his eyes going I never saw it I never saw it because in Ireland what we valued is you know, the, the green space between the ditches and every single farmer in Ireland is tired of having big lines drawn through their maps by the Department of Agriculture who tell us that this is wasteland, that this is scrub, that this has to be annihilated from your farm in order for you to make a living. And so for someone like me to come along and go, this is where the magic is. This man had old, ancient old oak trees on his land as well, that he just because nobody ever valued it, he never saw it or appreciated it. In those conversations, though, I mean, you know, philosophically you might be aligned with him and, and his emotional response to the landscape. Are you careful about the language, that the use of the word wild in those kind of, and rewilding, are those kind of disturbing terms when you're trying to uh, open a dialogue? It's always about starting where people are at, you know, and, you know, people would say, oh, go in and say this, this and this. But that project was literally about listening. It was just about me traveling from Ballybunion to Dingle on a bus and on a bicycle and walking to their farms and turning up saying, will you just walk me around your farm and we'll have a look? So the focus of this project was not necessarily about wild or wilding or rewilding, although those issues obviously create terror in some farmers who feel like, wow, I've been asked to do this and I've spent my whole life trying to grow food in the way the departments and the Europe has asked me. And now some people are saying, I feel like almost ashamed that I've spent my whole life trying to do something that I thought was right. And now I'm, I feel I've been made to feel bad about that. So I actually found it quite a humbling experience chatting to people and figuring out, but also realizing it's, it's deeply sad to see the damage that we have done. When you use the word wild, it becomes representative of something that, uh, that they have an antipathy towards. I suppose I didn't, I didn't genuinely go in using the word So wild. did you avoid it then? That's what I'm no, wondering. No, I didn't avoid it. But I mean, I, I literally was sitting, listening, going, what's going on here? And what, what's happening? So I was, I mean, I, I like talking, but I was genuinely trying not to talk. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking that question because in a way we're very interested here in how the language operates and helps and hinders those kind of uh, approaches we'd like to take to the land. Maybe, uh, Gwen Wilkinson, you'd, you'd tell us a little bit about, you're also on this edge between things that, that are wild and not wild when you're on the waterways. So your, your uh, book is about the experience of navigating Ireland and 
at some, to some extent, you use wild things, but there seems there a very virtuous relationship between the things that are sort of human organizer, human controlled, and this other thing that we're calling for the moment wild. I, I really don't believe um, much, if any, wild exists, um, certainly in Ireland. Um, you know, for me, wild is, it's like, a, it's like a unicorn or a dragon. Um, it's something fantastical and kind of slightly idealistic. I'd love to, you know, I, the romantic in me would love to think it does exist, but, um, you know, the practical kind of scientific side of me doesn't believe it exists. You know, so, so much of most of our land is managed in some way so, well, particularly yeah. in the waterways, you have this kind of intersection between the rivers that pre-existed the canals and then canals, which actually, despite uh, what they may have done to certain habitats, are, are, have begun to be woven into quite a virtuous ecosystem, maybe. Exactly. I mean, you've got the man-made canals, the Grand Canal and the Royal Canal. Um, so, you know, I mean, when they were constructed, um, they were passing through areas of, of, you know, very natural habitats, like, you know, the, the Great Bog of Allen, for example, the Grand Canal passed through, and um, it, had a, it had a tremendous negative impact on that habitat. It's very construction did, because we humans want to exploit um, the turf and, you know, use, use it for transport, convenient transport. But, when, you know, when I was passing through it now, um, it's become a tremendous corridor of biodiversity and, you know, such a vital corridor because we have so few corridors left for biodiversity to move from place to place. Um, so it, it's this kind of strange balance that on the one hand it, it has um, negatively impacted the, you know, the peatlands and the boglands, but now they're also, you know, very, very valuable in their own right and need to be maintained and continued. So yeah, and the rivers too. I was always, you know, hugely excited to set out on the river, you know, the great river Shannon um, and the Urn, the mighty river Urn. They were, you know, you really felt like you were some pioneer into the wilderness, but in fact, you know, the rivers, both rivers are, are dammed um, at each end. So, you know, again, you're, you, you've got man controlling the environments. Um, yeah, so I'm always kind of thinking about these dichotomies, you know, how we control and manage and what we think is wild and really isn't very wild at the end of the day. I guess, Paddy, you, you've been thinking about this a little bit, about this sort of the sense that wild is a relatively fuzzy term and, and susceptible to kind of change and maybe even manipulation, but that it somehow responds to cultural moments rather than being a kind of a value that, that persists. Well, I, I guess that's true of almost all words in a way. Words <laughs> change over history. And this is one thing that does, has greatly interested me. And I'm very influenced by uh, an American environmental historian, Bill Cronin, who kind of peeled back the layers from the landscapes that European settlers and their descendants right up to the present think they're seeing and saw levels of human activity, human interaction, going back over millennia. And he wrote this essay called The Trouble with Wilderness, where he points out that the kind of values that we would all probably attribute in a positive way to the wild uh, today, us here and an audience interested in nature and nature conservation and concerned about the crisis, 
But this positive perception of the wild is very, very new in European culture. And Cronin says, as late as the 18th century, the most common usage of the word wilderness, which is clearly related to wild, in the English language referred to landscapes that generally carried adjectives far different to the ones they attract today. To be a wilderness then was to be deserted, savage, desolate, barren. In short, a waste, the word's nearest synonym. Its connotations were anything but positive, and the emotion one was most likely to feel in its presence was bewilderment, wild again, or terror. And I think there's a very good reason for that, that, you know, when we ceased to be hunter-gatherers and began to settle and change the landscape through agriculture, we valued what we were doing. It provided surpluses that enabled us to do all sorts of things that we couldn't do as hunter-gatherers. And so we regarded the areas that we had not settled as hostile, dangerous, the haunt of, in human terms, the haunt of outlaws or savages or infidels, the people outside the city gates, and the city gates are much wider than the city. And that, you know, classical culture, Greek, Roman culture, medieval culture, nature in, in those cultures is cultivated nature, pastoral poetry. It's about agricultural landscapes, which of course were much more diverse then than they are today, and so often much more beautiful, because I think diversity, variety, is one of the things that stimulates the human mind. But it's only when, and now there are exceptions, and Luke hinted at them earlier, you know, the wildwood in Shakespeare, we do have a nostalgic recollection for the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and the wildwood is a place you may go into for a kind of benign enchantment, but much more often, I think it's terror. And um, when do we begin to really value the wild? It's the romantic movement which arises just when we have destroyed most of the wild and are destroying it increasingly fast. So in a way, it's a kind of Joni Mitchell conundrum. You know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. That's part of, of what lies behind it. I think the other thing that is very influential in our historical thinking about the wild has been uh, the, uh, the Bible, and in the English language, particularly the Protestant James I version of the, of, of, of the Bible, where the wilderness is almost always either a completely negative or a terrifying place. Because you go into the wilderness if you're a very daring prophet, and if you encounter this patriarchal God, you don't find a kind of benign Jesus Christ. You find a very angry, very wrathful deity. So it's not a place you go into for forest bathing. But I, I, I think that there's a particular transformation in America where the wild becomes associated, not just in the romantic sense that it became associated in Europe, people like Wordsworth, even people like Thoreau in the eastern United States, but it is also closely associated in America with the frontier mentality. And it's a contradictory thing. The frontier pioneer defines what it is to be American, but it destroys itself because the frontier eventually reaches the West Coast. And on the way, it carries out genocide after genocide, consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or accidentally, through disease, 
of the very people who'd been managing those landscapes. They weren't all hunter-gatherers. I mean, this incredibly patronizing idea we have about Native Americans, which has been very much exposed in the last 20 years. But this led this frontier mentality movement and this kind of terror that took place about American identity when the frontier is so successful that it disappears, then you get the deep ecologists in the 60s, 70s, who coined this term rewilding. And they are mostly very macho men who have a yearning for this landscape where they can kind of survive as hunter-gatherers, but most of you sissies in the city wouldn't be up for it. And, and they create this idea that wilderness is where nature is, so that nature is where there are the fewest people. And I think this is a very dangerous and problematic term. And then it was lifted back into Europe and in the English language, particularly by people like George Monbiot uh, with his book Feral, and very influentially by Isabella Tree with the book Wilding. And I think, you know, wilding, what is Isabella Tree actually doing? She's doing really important things in reorganizing the management of her land, but much of it has been managed still through traditional agriculture. And she's also belongs to an elite who can afford these kind of experiments. So when you start using the word with hill farmers in Wicklow, they naturally get pretty irritated because they think you're a cappuccino environmentalist who only goes to the country at weekends. Those associations have made the world magic as it is and important as it is in my own life problematic. As I say, I'm not saying ban it, I'm not saying don't use it, but I'm saying be very careful how and when you use it. There's a lot to unpack there. Thank you very much for that, Paddy. I'm interested in, in your reaction to what Paddy said. I think that the, the aspect of what Paddy was saying that strikes me is this idea that the, the frontier, the Wild West, and that what's heading towards the West is actually the colonizer, bringing with it a kind of genocidal wildness, you know, that it thinks it's somehow at the same time eradicating wildness. Anya. Yeah, there's so much in what's been said. And like I would, for a start, make a very big distinction between wild and wilderness. And we'll go to begin with wild, which for me, it's a cultural concept which we can apply to so many things, to, to our environment and nature, but to politics, to sexuality, to economics, um, to, to so many aspects of, of life, this idea of wild. We can describe so many different things as wild. But to me, wild is about diverse, untamed uh, species that have that freedom to determine their own life cycle or their own way of, of moving and being. Um, and that, to, to many of us, to this, this I guess, more modern uh, human approach, is scary. We don't like things that uh, that live in their own way. Uh, we go into a wild woodland and there's tiny little saplings and there's massive big old trees and they've fallen over and everything is covered with brambles and moss and it's difficult to get through. It might be swampy and inaccessible and, and kind of hostile, but to me that, that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's cluttered, it's not hierarchical. There's this self-determination of everything and that's a wild species. It's something that does it, its own thing. And I, I mean, Gwen, I agree, we, we don't of wilderness in Ireland anymore. 
um, in, in the ecological sense of places that are uh, uninfluenced or, or not shaped by, by human hand. But we definitely have wild species. We have an awful lot of wild species. Uh, and we can see those among birds, among mammals, among fish in the sea and, and whales. And uh, we go to a river and there are wild species do, living their lives in their own way. Uh, and to me, that's, that's the appeal of, of the wild. And we definitely have lots of the wild in Ireland. How, how does wild get to turn up in so many book titles now? Uh, for myself, I had quite a, quite a hard time coming up with a name for my book, Wild Embrace. Uh, and there was, there was lots of me doing out word clouds and there was toing and froing with my publisher. And there was an enthusiasm there to include the word eco initially. And we had a few different ideas around eco this or eco that. And I wasn't that delighted with that. And then I came up with the idea of, of an embrace of when we are in nature and we're engaging with uh, wild species, whether it's looking at geese or looking into the, the center of a flower and seeing the wonder in nature in Ireland. And that idea of that so reassuring, like an embrace, like a hug. So I came to the publisher uh, saying, in embrace of nature. I've got the title. I was so excited in embrace of nature. And she said, without pause, wild embrace. I thought, great, that's it, bingo. You know, using a term like the wild embrace, which I use throughout the book, is about how we engage with non-human things, things we haven't shaped or put in lines or controlled or civilized or made to be, you know, conforming with our expectations of a, of a certain way of being. But also with that kind of consciousness that Paddy was talking about in Stony Batter looking at a fern, what he sort of described sounds like a, a wild embrace. I think we need to embrace the wild in our... I mean, Thoreau actually talks about the wild in our gut. And of course, we've more biodiversity in our gut than you have in the, Irish, in, in the average Irish intensified farming field. When you go to WB Yeats for your wild, how did that happen as a title for your book? Waters in the Wild. Did, yeah, did you yeah. have a, a mythical meeting with your publisher like uh, Anya had where this was, this was thrashed out? No, no, it was all, all very simple and straightforward. It was, it was quite, quite easy. Yeah. Tell but us. I mean, it is, it is a word that's been, you know, really grasped and um, probably, you know, it is... It is overused in, in certain areas. I mean, you know, you've got the, the whole wild Atlantic way. It's just such a, a buzzword. And, you, you know, all, all along the wild Atlantic way, all the businesses, little, little businesses popping up and they all have wild in front of their names. So it's just, um, it's, it, it is get, getting out of hand at this stage. Yeah. But I think something like that you're doing in the Barna way, uh, Lisa, it's, it, it's, this is an interesting area where art and farming kind of intersect. And that sort of debugs the word in some ways, like takes away the unspoken kind of aspects of the word. Yeah, I suppose you just become increasingly aware of um, how important it is that people have access to nature. And, you know, when Paddy used the word terror, like from a feminist point of view, I, I grew up, you know, wanting to be in the wild and wanting, to, and I was really struck by you in your book talking about camping, you know, pulling up on your little boat and camping and the safety aspects for women. And I suppose as two women running a farm, I'm very aware that women particularly don't get to do the wild camping as much. Or I remember when Ashling Murphy was murdered, I was out on a mountain and I remember just sitting down and writing a poem and sobbing, thinking I'd forgotten 
about the fear that I feel when I'm walking in mountains on my own, always looking over my back to see if somebody's walking. And, then, and it takes away from it all the time, that fear. So when you said about terror, I think particularly for women, and I suppose the barn away, what we've really tried to do is think about groups who don't have access to the wild. There are currently 110 million people around the world who are displaced from war and conflict and climate change. So we've been talking about, well, how do we, uh, people who are living in direct provision with no access to the wild. So I often talk about privilege and power, and I'm glad Paddy brought it up in terms of the frontiers, because I think as particularly white people in the world, we really need to look at people who are living in a relatively safe environment. We really need to think about land use and how we're going to open up our land to people around the world who are going to need this. And then the implications of that for wildness and wilderness and everything else as well. How do we protect these little bits of, if it is wild, how do we protect it, but also how do we share it so that people and creatures and, and those little creatures who don't have a voice, that, that we somehow use our power to protect them. I think that might be a good place to uh, thank our audience here at the National Botanic Gardens for coming along. I'd also like to thank our best of panellists, Lisa Fingleton, Anya Murray, Gwen Wilkinson and Paddy Woodworth. Culture File will be back in the wild on Monday and the Culture File Weekly will run amok again next Saturday tea time on RGE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now. Bye.